Brilliant. Hi, welcome to the 267 podcast in our lovely new... Can we still call it a new office? Mm, I don't think we can still call it. How long have we been in since February? We're allowed to call it... It's new-ish. New-ish office. Yeah. Uh, I'm Mike Palin, uh, 267 director. Uh, also with me is Ellie. Say, Ellie, say hi. Hello. Ellie is on the big blue sofa. Yeah, cosy is... with a cushion in front of me to cuddle because that's <laughs> the mood I'm in right now. <laughs> so if you want to come into the office, there's a big blue sofa. Uh, and then our guest today is Callum. Callum, say hi. Hi there, it's good to be here. Callum, nice Callum what, uh, from your email, can you tell me how to pronounce your surname? Zuckert. Zuckert. Yeah. There you go. That is... Is yeah. it from uh, a country? Uh, yeah, so my paternal grandfather was like Czech German. He spoke German, wow. so we could say it with a bit of a sort of German accent, if you like, Zuckert or something. Because ah. they sometimes say, like the W V thing, so they they change the letter completely. Yeah, so, like, so Zuckert. It's, it's not quite like that. Uh, the the U had an umlaut over it, so it's sort of an oh. U sound and an U sound. Anyway, but you dropped the umlaut. There we go. We dropped the umlaut. Oh, yeah, okay. a couple it's of generations. It's a good ago. strong surname, <laughs> <concerning. laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Um, and what is your sort of day to day? job. So I'm one of the two minor canons at the cathedral. A canon's just uh, a priest that works at a cathedral uh, and there are two of us who have specific responsibilities for, well, the other one for running the liturgy, the services in the cathedral uh, and I've got responsibility for the children and young people. So I'm the minor canon youth chaplain at St Albans Cathedral. So keep an eye on children's church and what we do with our young people on Sundays and then a couple of youth groups and things, toddler group and well, um, in a sort of classic sense of the Church of England, my uh, youth or young people run up to age 40. So uh, I also oversee yes. the young per- the young persons like 20 and 30s adults. group as well. Young adults, young adults. Which is great fun, actually. And there's loads of variety in the job. So, oh, so if you're wow. in your 20s and 30s, you're still a young person. You are still a young person, <laughs> Mike. Love that. No, I'm not. <laughs> no. Do you think they just made that for people that just didn't really ever want to you had 20 and better about themselves. If you had 20 and 30 together, then I'm still a young person. That's fine. Um, now, we don't know you that well, so we're going to chuck out a couple of questions to get to know you a bit, for, mainly for Ellie and I, really. Yeah. Uh, I found a bunch of questions uh, from an American chat show where they reckon if you answer all of these questions, you will be deeply known. Sounds legit. Now, we haven't got time for all, all of them, but I thought we'd chuck a couple of them at you. Great. So we thought, uh, what's your favourite smell? My favourite smell? Right. I've, I'm going to have to go a bit niche on this one, I think, Ooh. actually. So... <laughs> One of the small luxuries that I treat myself to in life is some quite nice smelling aftershave. Mm. And there's a company, Penhaligans, that makes the most amazing perfumes and aftershaves and things. Uh, and one of their scents called Levanthium is just glorious. Wow. Um, so I'm going to say that's my favourite smell. Terms and conditions may apply and it probably varies depending, <laughs> depending on the season. But I'm going to go with that at that's the moment. That's a great niche answer. Well, I love yeah. stuff like that. Okay. It means you're not a pat also, like that. Uh, so to the... Compare that, what's your least favourite smell? Oh, um <laughs> Gosh, that's a good question. I can't remember what mine was. Off milk, mine, mine was. Oh, yeah, that's oh, pretty yeah. good. I um, think, you, you know when roadworks are happening and they've kind of got the, the tar the burning tar to put, oh, the yeah. tar mark burning to put down... And you can probably like taste the dust in the air and things as well. And that's so like pretty thick, grim. heavy smell, isn't it? It's yeah. like human, human burning sulfur, basically. Because <laughs> you get a lot of people that like the sort of petrol smells, yeah, and engine like smell, that kind of yeah, my, smell. my son loves it. I remember liking it when I was younger, but then yeah. I don't know if it was a thing as I got older. It just yeah. smells like badness. Like it's really bad for you. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> and evil. I keep telling, I keep keep telling Cohen like, no, yeah. don't smell it. 
Of course, in church, we love incense, really. And yeah. We would say, you know, there are, two, there are two smells in the afterlife, aren't there, depending on which direction you go in. There's either the incense of heaven or there's the burning sulfur of hell. So uh, you've got the choice between is the two. In church? Maybe that's why you don't like tarmac. Maybe it is. It's all <laughs> theological, actually. Yeah, I've got that. It smells like hell. Well, I've got In the incense of church, do they flavour it at all? Oh, yeah. So wow. there, it's little coals that we set light, and then we put the incense on the burning coals. Um, and, yeah, so it's, it's flavoured. It can either be, like, florally flavoured or perfume or whatever. And it's made from resin out of trees, but it's okay. always got other, you know, things in it. Oh, nice. And is there seasonal flavours? Ah, oh, this, is, this is getting pretty niche. So this is church stuff, yeah. Liturgy. Yeah, so I do stuff, think, because so. the church does, doesn't do things... Yeah, so I mean, it depends what sort of church you go to, really, is the answer to that, you know. So during, um, like, Easter season, you might have, like, pure frankincense, which is obviously much more expensive than, like, just, mm. you know, run-of-the-mill incense. Or wow. Whatever. Or, you know, during a penitential season, you might have one that's got, like, a more bitter, citrusy... I thought you were going to say, like, it. myrrh. Because like, you had frankincense before, and then you can Could like do, do yeah. meh. Yeah. And, and gold would just sprinkle yeah. on very special. <laughs> <laughs> there is actually aftershave though called oh, I can't remember the name of it now. Shake, it's called Shake, and it actually has got like frankincense really? and myrrh and stuff in it. So wow. yeah, just like. Who, see, I we're learning stuff today because I mm. weirdly I had a conversation with someone very similar, very niche, yeah. and it was why the lightsabers in Star Wars are all coloured the colours they are. Right. Oh. And when you unpack the sort of mythology of why they all are, it is the same as going, I did not know that. I didn't know that there was flavours for the year and the intense. It's like, mm. yeah. love it. Yeah. Last question then. What's okay. the scariest animal? Snake. Has to be a snake. I'm well. absolutely terrified of <laughs> reptiles. You don't like burning tar. You don't like snakes. But I do love frankincense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I'm terrified of reptiles and particularly ones without legs. Grim. Wow. Mm, interesting. I can't deal with them, honestly. <laughs> I don't think they're nice. I, I, just wouldn't, I wouldn't say that they're scary, though. I don't know. Snakes. I think something, my problem with those sort of animals, the same as scorpions, is the camouflage aspect. You can't see them until they're on you. Mm. So I've got, you know, bear comes up to me. Bears are quite scary characters, but it's almost it's there. They're quite cuddly looking, though, aren't they? Well, not like a polar bear. They're like the most dangerous yeah, creatures on the planet. They, yeah, but they don't look like they're doing the most dangerous. No, yeah, that's why you've got to be aware of Oh, it's like camouflage, one. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now, Ellie, to wonderfully take a left at the lights, what is our theme title today? So the title is, I want to follow Jesus, but I struggle with the church. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people have probably experienced this or can relate to this question in lots of ways. Um, but I thought to start it off, would it would be nice to know like what your journey or experience has been like with the church or like what your background is and also how did you end up at the cathedral? Yeah, thank you. So I grew up going to church, um, which I feel really lucky for actually. I don't have that. Some people have got those, you know, astonishing stories of, you know, conversion or moments that they really committed to Jesus or whatever. For me, it was just something that I, I always had growing up. It was, you know, brilliant. I, I, from a young age, I just loved going to church, really. Um, and then, you know, as I became a student or whatever, it was obviously natural that when I went to university, I'd find a, a church to go to, and it was my college chapel that I found home in there. And then, uh, and increasingly, I just felt drawn to more and more church, really, until I found myself, you know, in one every day, really. Mm. Um, so... 
yeah, like I remember growing up being really keen to commit to faith. And as a teenager, I wanted to, well, I, was, I grew up in Scotland in Edinburgh. So uh, that was in a Church of Scotland church just west of the city centre in Edinburgh. Uh, and I was really keen to uh, become a member of the church, which is, I suppose, the Church of Scotland's equivalent to confirmation. But generally mm-hmm. happens a bit later than we would have people confirmed in the Church of England. Uh, but I was really keen to do that kind of as soon as I could. Uh, became a church organist. Um, when I left university, I studied music at university, then I had a career as a musician for a bit. I still keep bits and pieces of music going on. But um, a lot of that just drew me more and more into the life of the church as well. Wow. Um, that being said, I've not always had a happy experience at the church. And I can definitely yeah. relate to the question. I'm sure we'll get on to talking mm. a bit more about that. Um, but church had always been a pretty big feature in my life, really. Um, and it didn't feel an unnatural thing to do to say, actually, I feel called to being ordained in this church and serving God in, in that way. Hmm. Um, yeah. Was that modelled by family? Is that why you went to church? or? Well, yeah, I mean, my parents took me to church. Um, and But, you know, over the Sunday dinner table or whatever, I'd be really keen to talk about church that day. <clears throat> my brother would hate to do that. My parents would probably put up with it. <laughs> Something's never changed, really. But... Um, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I would say, yeah, it was modelled by family, but it wasn't, I mean, we weren't going, they weren't going to church on days other than Sundays, you know, I wasn't being pushed into the direction, Mm. and in fact, when I first said that I was thinking about being ordained in the Church of England, there was a bit of resistance, probably, but I think a lot of it was to do with them not really knowing what it involved, probably having predetermined ideas about what a priest was, Mm. and obviously the word priest isn't used in the Church of Scotland in that sense, uh, in the sense of an ordained person. So uh, there was a lot about language and what that meant okay. as well. Um, yeah, because it's quite interesting hearing you talk about your experience because I came from a non-Christian background, yeah. never experienced church, found Jesus, absolutely loved church. Like, church was my life. Like, well, it still is my life. <laughs> but um, it was just like I wanted to be in the church walls all the time. I was at everything and I, like, hardly saw my family because it was always just church, church, church. Yeah. But then in the last, like, two years, and I think pandemic has probably had something to do with this, now sometimes I feel like I struggle with um just like kind of the pressure of being at everything to do with church and that I'm finding myself I'm outside of church more now which I think is good because you're able to like be the light and be with family and you can be a witness to your family um but then I feel guilt of not always being at church or having the same kind of passion as I did before or it's it's looked upon like you don't have the same kind of passion if you're not always at church things, because I'm comparing it to how I was before. Yeah, and there are sort of seasons for this as well, aren't there? And I think it's fine to have, you know, a season where you're very involved and a season where you're a bit more on the periphery, a season where you've taken leadership roles and, you know, a season when when you're being led by others. I think that's good for us all in our faith, Mm. not to be doing the same thing all Mm. the time. I think it's a quite Christian thing to accept that, you know, even as ministers in the church, um, we need ministers too, for example. Mm. yeah, and I think even finding the energy for that is really, really important yeah. as part of the Christian discipleship journey. Yeah. And how did you end up at the cathedral then? Oh, yeah. So, well, so after university, so I, w- I went forward for ordination. Um, I trained firstly in Cambridge, then had a bit of a break. I finished off my training at St. Melitus in London, got ordained and served my curacy, which is a priest's first job in the Church of England in North London, um, an amazing church, St. Paul's, Winchmore Hill. And then... Um, 
I'd got to know the cathedral a bit because at that point I was still keeping going with um, conducting a few choirs. Okay. And one of the choirs that I was conducting, which I still conduct in fact, is the sort of children's outreach choir at the cathedral here. Wow. Uh, and then when the job came up, it just felt like a really good fit. And yeah. it's a place that I knew I liked. It wasn't moving super far from where I was before. But again, in a city that I knew I'd enjoy living. Yeah. It just felt like a really good fit. So I applied for it and um, thankfully got the job. Wow. What what I think what would your advice be for people that are in church and do feel called to church but sometimes they're in it and sometimes a lot of the time it can feel like a burden. Yeah. Or like a I think duty sometimes. We yeah, feel like, about, it, like like it becomes more of yeah like like that. Well, I think that there's a few things to say. I do have a slightly hardline attitude of one element of this, which is that I think as Christians we have a responsibility to be church. Mm-hmm. And I pick my words quite cautiously there. Um, we might backtrack a little bit and think about what church is and what church looks like. And at the moment, obviously, over the past sort of 10 years, in the Church of England particularly, there's been a great trend toward fresh expressions of church. Cafe church or choir church mm. or whatever it is. You know, things that are bringing the church out of a building and mm. into a, essentially a social space, usually. And I think that's a good thing. But as Christians, the fundamental thing is we are called, we, are, um, we have to go to church. We have to be church. And if we think about what that means, you know, um, so we hear about ecclesiological things, things to do with the church. And of course, the word ecclesia is Greek for gathering. Right. And I think that's an import, a vital element of our faith, a total central element of our faith. You cannot be a Christian by yourself. Mm-hmm. Because there are things that unite us, like the creeds um, and like the sacraments. And if you get too far away from those things, you're no longer Christian. Mm. And I think we, we can be a bit clear about that. Mm. But what it looks like in practice, whether that means that you need to go to a building that you know is a thousand years old and has music <laughs> of a certain style, I think is all up for grabs at the moment. Mm. But... To be Christians, we need to gather with other Christians. We need to strive towards the unity of the church. Um, and we need, to, we need to live in community in some way with one another. As I'm saying that, of course, I'm thinking about the amazing hermits of the church and so yeah. on, the people who actually commit to isolation. But they do it around a, a, a rule, usually. Okay. And that would, that would be enough to provide the... the uh, the sense of gathering i think yeah because yeah no it is good and like i was having this conversation with my friend the other day like sometimes church can look like me and my like sister take three friends meeting yeah. up them coming around for dinner yeah. us praying us talking or having conversations like this uh sharing things it doesn't always for me i feel like does it always does it always have to look like attending a service on oh, a sunday goodness. you know ticking all the christian boxes of i'm going to sell group i'm going to the young adults group and on the surface, it looks like I'm part of a community. Yeah. Or does it mean in different ways, you know? Yeah. It doesn't always look like... Because a lot of the time, Christians can look like they're doing everything on the surface. But mm. actually, behind closed doors, you know, the heart's not really there. I think the cha- is the challenge then, though, with that, is that I sort of half agree with you. Because we were saying, what about the question when people say, do you need to go to church to be a Christian? Mm. I'm, I'm almost like, well, the, that's the wrong question. It's actually, why would you not want to go to church? as a Christian and so actually it's almost like I can hang around and have friends and lunch and stuff like that a lot and can be church in that but I think like Callum said there's something about choosing to do church 
and what that means for Christians to gather, to pray together, to study, to have communion together. All those sort of things are really important elements. So if all I did was have dinner with people, I could be church by doing that. Yeah. So I could be. But actually, I would say, is that enough mm. for that? So I think it's almost both. We've yeah. probably gone too far the other way. We said actually churches, 10.30 on a Sunday morning, stand up, sit down, song, prayer, communion, go home. And so we've made it far too clinical and cold and I think lacked the creativity of where God could yeah. be church. I mean, if we think about where the church be- began, yeah. if you like, I mean, there are, there are loads of different starting points, but you know, the great commission of Jesus, mm. go and make disciples of all nations and yeah. baptise them. Mm. If that is the fundamental uh, welcome, the initiation into the church, then what do you do about that? What yeah. happens next? It's really clear that, you know, the disciples are dashing round the known world, mm. trying to baptise people and tell them the good news of Jesus and get them on board with this idea. But what that immediately means is that they need to structure it. So very quickly, the church has deacons and bishops, people that are administering the sacraments, communion and baptism particularly, and people that are going around and doing the work on the ground uh, and and spreading the good news. Um, And I think we have these roles in the church, whether we like it or not. And so I suppose... the coming a bit back to the original question about you know not feeling totally on board with the church always i suppose my question would be what's the alternative what's the alternative being a christian but not being totally on board with the church and i can't help feeling that it would end up after a bit of time just looking like the church again you know say you set up something independently and you're doing your you know, two or three gathering, praying, singing spiritual songs. In the end, you'll develop a pattern. Let's call that a liturgy for the sake of argument. You might develop a bit of things that you do to remind you of things. Let's call that ritual. And very quickly, I think we would get into a situation that doesn't look that far from the established church. But there is a real challenge to established churches when we start thinking about that. What's window dressing and not important that we build up to be a sort of idol in the church? Because let's be clear, idolatry is alive and well in the church. Um, And what's the essentials of what we're doing here? What are the things that are bringing people in, sharing the good news and resourcing them to go out and do more of it? Without losing sight of the fact Mm. that we we will fail. Mm. Mm. And the church will always fail because we're always human and to our is human yeah. and sin is our condition. Mm. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that we've been redeemed. Mm. And so when we fail and when we err, that's all right as well yeah. because Jesus is there to, to help us out of our brokenness. Mm-hmm. So it's, I've got I've gone off on a bit of a tangent, no, but I think this is all totally related because I'm not sure there's a really clear distinction to make between home church for the sake of you know mm. using a term that became a bit popular again during lockdown and mm. established church mm. because i think they become very similar very quickly i think why people might prefer the idea of home church compared to an established church and the conversations that mm. i've heard from other people too is that at, in an established church there are not many people that feel comfortable enough to be their complete authentic self and mm. i think that's why people might be more comfortable in a home church with certain people Mm. um because i feel like in church environments and my experience of church too um 
Yeah, like, it's like, okay, I'm saved and I'm redeemed, but there is a level of expectation of how I'm supposed to be living, and sometimes we're not quite there yet. And even though church should be a place of you're accepted and you're loved, actually, it can quite often feel like if you were just yourself, then, oh my goodness, you're such a simple person, and mm. I don't know if we can sit with you. <laughs> but, uh, and of course, when you say that, I, I, keep, I keep thinking, well... More and more, the church, the established church, is becoming um, kind of consumerist. We move in the direction of giving people what they want when they come to church. Um, so the thing about not fitting in, I wonder if that's less of a problem now than it was even 10 years ago or something. Um, and there's a big debate in the, in the Church of England, certainly at the moment, about the parish and what it means for there to be a parish structure. So the... The the well not the theory the reality is that every corner of this country is in a parish and you have certain legal rights in your parish church for example to be baptized and to be married uh, and uh, there's there's nothing that anyone can really do about them in your parish church you have you have those rights you can be asked to pre be prepared for those things by the clergy there or whatever but they can't stop you from doing them. You have a right to be. So there are good things about the parish system. I, everybody has a church, whether they're Christian or not, and whether or not they know it. Mm. That's a good thing. If you're, uh, if you're uh, a young person, you're new into the church, um, you've never sung a hymn before in your life, mm -hmm. you think the organ's a bit weird, you don't understand why the service is in a particular order, and you think, I'm going to go to my parish church, and there's all this stuff that feels really foreign to you, are you going to feel at home there? Are you going to feel obligated to go? I don't know. All these things are, are, are questions. But there's also a sort of parallel system going on where in, in each geographical location, we're increasingly seeing something of one style besides something mm. of a very different style. And people are doing picking and choosing what mm. they're going to. Um, and I think there's a real place for that as well, mm. actually. While I'm a big supporter of the parish system, and I think you know, parishes being resourced on the ground is the way that we're going to structurally structurally build up the church. Uh, I think there's a lot to be said for making sure every geographical location, so far as is possible, has a bit of um, flexibility of style and so on to help people feel they don't, they aren't obligated to go to their parish church yeah. if there's a church right beside them that suits them better. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's the... Uh, What's the biggest difference working for a normal church and a cathedral? <laughs> well, <laughs> apart from the size and the yeah. age of the building. It's quite <laughs> <laughs> the size and the age of the building, yeah. Well, I suppose you do get but, some really well, big non cathedral yeah. churches, don't you? Yeah, yeah and you get some quite small cathedral churches because cathedrals uh, okay. in some places. Um, and this is a peculiarity here because we are both a cathedral and a parish mm. church which um, a few cathedrals are but not all by any means well let's take a step back a cathedral is a place where the bishop's seat is that's what the cathedral is the chair the bishop sits in okay so that's why there are cathedrals every diocese in the country has a cathedral i.e has a place for the bishop to sit so the the difference of a church or a cathedral is that the bishop's seat is in the cathedral right in a technical sense. Okay. What throne, that, yeah, throne. the throne, exactly. Yeah. Um, like, yeah. I always say a bishop is a throne, a bishop is a palace, whether they like it or not, yeah. if they live in a caravan, it's still a palace if a bishop's living in it. Right. Anyway, side note, um, I think 
But that is probably the fundamental difference on the ground as well, okay. because cathedrals are there for, for more than just the people beside them, because they are the place that ordinations happen. Yeah, they're the place that are usually near the seat of power in an area, um, and if not geographically, then at least in people's minds, the cathedral is near the seat of power because literally the bishop's seat is there. Um, so a lot of what we do is very uh, public, whether we like it or not. You know, um, one of the things that's really great about this cathedral, St Albans Cathedral, is I don't find it a fussy, pretentious place yeah. at all. That's There's good. no fee to get in. There's often children running around. There are often dogs in the building. Yeah. They're all welcome. And, yeah. you know, and it's, it's very open in that respect. And not all cathedrals are. Yeah. Um, the thing that we sometimes need reminded of or sorry that I sometimes need reminded of because of that is that we're pretty public you know mm. we do evening prayer or even song every day of the week every, throughout the whole year you know without exception we have even song on pretty it's much quite active yeah quite yeah but we're a big public building and that means you know people walk in looking for all sorts of things and so we're always on duty which means it's a very busy place mm. I'm not sure I'm answering this question very well, really. But no, I think you are, because one of the things I've just picked up from you is that I think most of us that go to non-cathedral churches, we have that our, our church isn't open in that sense, is it? Mm. We, it it's opens when we go to church, yeah. whereas the cathedral is almost a tourist attraction mm. as well, isn't it? And yeah. so you've probably got, I would say, 50% of the people that visit it aren't churchgoers. They're people that are just like... It's yeah, beautiful, it's cathedral of And we don't get that in our yeah. churches. Yeah. So they aren't yet churchgoers, I think. Back. That's right. Well, yeah. maybe they are churchgoers. Well, I don't cover Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's all a missional opportunity. In the yeah, exactly. but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very um, interesting point, really. I mean, if you look at our social media at the moment, there's a lot on there about, um, for example, the Peregrine Falcons. I know, I got or, a picture last week. <laughs> Baby Peregrine Falcon. Oh, wow. Yeah. So cute. What, like, Make some noise, though. Yeah, they're yeah. just hungry. Yeah. Yeah. I'm guessing, like, they're in the town. Yeah, they've got a they've got a nest in the tower and yeah. first you know, time ever or something. Yeah, I think it's the first time we've had lots of other cathedrals have got them as well. You know, it's not just us, but it's, it's there's they've been, got a style. They like they do. Cathedrals. They like cathedrals. Yeah, yeah. holy buildings. That's good for them. <laughs> <laughs> good for their souls or something. Little birdie yeah, souls. Right. Yeah, um, only last last couple of weeks ago, it dived, got a pigeon. Yeah. And then ripped the pigeon apart yeah. and fed it to the baby. Yeah. yeah apparently, people were getting it. We didn't get no to it, but we got some pictures of it diving. It was brilliant. Brutal, but... Fantastic for pigeon life. control. <laughs> Pest control. Yeah. Well, I'm saying, why don't you get some more peregrine falcons here? Well, I think yeah. So, I mean, the, the point is that people are interested in lots yeah. of things about our building that are a million miles away from what I would consider, you know, the core job of church, yeah. really. Um, but, I mean, like you say, it makes it a very public building. We're definitely one of the, well, probably the great tourist attraction in St Albans. Mm. Um, and there's Roman ruins and so on. So there are other things going on. There's great museums. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of people come here as tourists or whatever to see the cathedral. You know, it's an extraordinary building. You know, one of the beams that's holding up the, the ceiling in the tower is a thousand years old, mm. a wooden beam. Um, mm. and, and that's that's remarkable. You know? Can I ask a slightly loaded yeah. question? Tom? Is that yeah. right? So because so, it's an open building and you've got missional opportunities like that, how much of the time is able to have members of the clergy walking around having those sort of slightly purposeful interactions with the people that have just walked in? This is something that's really crucial to us, actually. Right. Um, and 
every day of the year, we have a member of clergy on the cathedral floor during the day. Okay. Um, and we've got a we've got a rota, as most cathedrals do actually, of duty chaplains. Just mingling around, yeah. saying hi. So okay. it's it's very rare that it would be me or one of my full time colleagues there. But sometimes it's retired priests, sometimes it's priests okay. from other parishes in the diocese, or readers from from around the diocese. But there is always someone you know in a cassock, actively seeking out those opportunities. Wow. Um, and I know they have remarkable encounters on a daily basis. I'd love to do that. We'll sign you up. <laughs> what don't you don't have to be clergy? Um, I would need to check that actually. So um, I would love to say anyway. but often the clergy are readers or whatever. Um, but it's a brilliant, brilliant job. I bet, and, and it's crucial to our ministry because you don't want to come into a religious building and we, you know, we're we're making no apology for religion there. You know, it's mm. front and centre. Yeah. We have two Eucharists every day in the cathedral at uh, eight in the morning and midday every single day. Um, we've got an additional uh, three on a Sunday. You know, we, it's a busy, busy place, and they, our faith is right at the centre of it. Mm. And one of the ways that we do that, it, you know, we're conscious. People come through the doors because they're looking for something. Mm. Very often, you know, every day, these chaplains that we've got on the cathedral floor are having extraordinary encounters with people. Um, either people who have hit rock bottom or... Uh, are suffering bereavement or just need a yeah. bit of quiet and a bit of space and they may or may not be Christian uh, but we've got chaplains that are there every day to support them with that so the other thing I'm thinking about is um, the sort of the, the interactions again is of, of with people just walking around it's just such a it's a real privilege isn't it because you get to find out you've got sort of real raw people they're not coming to a service mm they're they're just there yeah. and we don't really have that because most people just yeah. go to church and you don't really have people walking like that do you which is no um i i think it's just so important i i i'll say this till the cows come home you know welcome is totally crucial to what we yeah. do here obviously um the cathedral here is a benedictine foundation you probably know in the rule of saint benedict he says to welcome every stranger as if he was Christ. Wow. So you imagine, you know, and you know, I can't say, you know, we're not as good at it as many Benedictine communities are, but it really is core to our ethos that whoever you are, wherever you've come from, you are welcome to come through our doors at any time we're open and, um, and experience the place. And it's a holy place. You know, yeah. we already spoke briefly about St. Alban and his martyrdom. Yeah. Uh, you know, Christians have been coming to this holy site for 1,700 years. Yeah. And you can tell that. You know, the stones tell that story. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I think people get it, whether, whether they come with, a, with an idea about what faith is or not. And I suppose that kind of takes a little bit back towards the, the starting question, doesn't it? About, you know, people that don't often get on with the church. Well, there's this great trend, you know, religious but not, um, what, spiritual but not religious. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the, 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 the trends towards mindfulness and all this kind of thing are about engaging with something bigger and deeper going on. And what we find as a very public church building is that there are people who are coming through our doors asking for that encounter mm. now we know that the truth of that encounter will only come through the person of jesus mm. as christians we know that to be the truth but if we can get into it with people by talking to them about god about their faith about how they feel about things 
about prayer and meditation, all these things are are tools for encountering the divine. Yeah. And um, in a big public building in the centre of a city where, where people come for all sorts of different reasons, uh, we're just immensely lucky to, to be in that situation, really. And there's a real real power in the physical nature of the building, isn't it? That we, you know, we, me, you meet in a, almost an office building. Yes. Um, we've got friends that meet in like a warehouse and you've got other friends. Whereas actually there's something about, um, you know, even if I struggle with church, every time I go to the cathedral, there is something spiritual about the fact that you're in a place that's over a thousand years old, that people have worshipped there, but that is visually yeah. mm. significant. And I wonder how helpful that is to people that are maybe struggling with organised religion yeah. to come in and see a place like that. That really, I always find it helps yeah. my faith. Yeah, I mean, we believe, I believe, prayer works. And if we say that this is a building that people have been praying in since before <laughs> it was built, which is true, that's changed it. And it's not just, it's not just the bricks and mortar and the ceiling and the paintings and stuff. They exist thanks to, you know, the goodwill of many, many benefactors, the skill of craftspeople who have put it yeah. together. But because God is good and is providing us the space and everything to go with it. Um, and we, we're just stewards of it. We're, we'll, we'll pass through it to die and the building will still be here. We'll have prayed in it. And if we believe that prayers are working, then that includes our prayers and the prayers of our children. Um, and it, it's amazing. You know, I, one of the things that I do in the cathedral is run a choir on a Monday night. And it's so important to me, despite the fact, you know, I can't have a projector screen and I can't have the children in a nice, neatly contained space, <laughs> that we rehearse right in the middle of the nave of the cathedral. Yeah. Because they look up and it's just astonishing. You see their faces, the first few rehearsals they come to, you know, six, seven, eight-year-old children. And it, it teaches them something about uh, something that's bigger than themselves. Yeah, yeah I was going to say the building is almost like, it reminds of like the royal, royalty like mm. of, of God. Mm. But my question, there was another question I was going to ask mm. you. And I think we all know how like full on being a Christian or being involved in a church can be. Like, how do you manage that and balance it? Because even in the cathedral, it sounds yeah. like it's so busy all yeah. the time. It's just... And we know that being a Christian is an everyday thing. Yeah. But sometimes it's like, how do we manage a social life and yeah. everything and still be a big part of a community or a church? Uh, well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. You know, I find, it, I find this really difficult, actually. Uh, particularly at the moment, things are really busy. Uh, I'm not great at taking the time off I need and, and, and so on um, I, I don't feel I don't worry about saying that because I think you know that's just that's just the reality of it it's a busy place and committing to a community and to ministry in a community isn't our nine to five yeah. Monday to Friday job and it can't be I'm not sure I've got a clear answer because of that really mm. um, I think In prayer and through reflection, we learn about ourselves and we learn about God mm -hmm. and we learn what we need to feed our souls and to feed our bodies and to look after our souls and bodies. And we try to get it right. And when we've got it wrong by I'm an introvert. So actually lots and lots of interactions with big, big groups of people I find exhausting. Mm, yes. I know that I need, you know, a quiet pint with a good friend at the end of that kind of day. And so you try to you try to factor that sort of thing in. Or, you know, if you feel like 
sometimes the, the frustration of being in a very big place of work is that you get clogged, you know, your diary gets clogged up with meetings. And you think, oh, when was the last thing I did something that fed my sacramental, my priestly identity? Gosh, it's probably a week ago that I left it. So I know that I need to really find a way of, of feeding that part of me. Uh, and, you know, it's not something I always get right, mm. but I think it's always a process of, of learning and adapting. And, you know, one thing that's really nice is I'm surrounded by colleagues with whom I pray every day. Mm. You know, the day starts at 7.30 in the morning with morning prayer, which we all say together. Then there's a Eucharist and we probably each go to, you know, some of them a week. Um, and then the day, the working day kind of ends at five o'clock with evening prayer, even song every day. And those little points, those sort of stationary points, the bookends of the day, mm. uh, I think they do help with that. I don't know if you know, you probably, your office is just across from the cathedral, mm. so you might have heard the bells go off. So yeah. the bells have a very intricate pattern of what they do. But one of the patterns of bells that happens is three times a day, there's a special prayer called the Angelus, which is, is prayed by the bells. So it's a set of three three times three rings it goes ding 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 then it waits for a minute then it goes ding 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 then it dings ding 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 and then there's nine dings after that and that happens at uh, nine in the morning midday and six o'clock in the evening and so i do try every time that happens to just stop for a moment wow. and just uh, just listen to to the bells and the theory of that it's a, it's a prayer about the incarnation of jesus and it exists for exactly the reasons you'd expect at the beginning the end and the middle of the day to make sure that you're your life and your work is rooted on the incarnation. I love Jesus. that. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's funny because so many people will hear that and they won't even know that that is what it is, but it's still like a sound. But well, once you do know it, you'll be yeah. like, I'm going to remember that. Yeah. yeah. That pause in your day. Can I, you, we talked a bit about the sort of flawed nature of us as people and then by definition, the church. If So we've chatted to people where they've been hurt by the church yeah. when actually they've been hurt by people. How do you help someone sort of walk back to that when it's such a, almost like a shroud that they've almost tarnished every interaction with it? Is there a way, is it things like actually just to go and spend time in the cathedral is actually quite powerful because it's not my church or your church, it's much more. I, I'm not sure I've got a good answer to this. The, the thing that seems clear about those circumstances is that no two people who are in that position mm. are the same and what they need isn't the same as the person that you've maybe just spoken to who's had that experience there are things I would want to say and I would want to say that I'm sorry mm. I, and I would want to say that the church wants to repent of the sins that led to those things happening mm whether it's the protection of priests who uh, abused people, uh, or whether it was that the structures of the church let people fall through the cracks, or, or whether we were turning a blind eye to something or whatever, I think it's probably important to say sorry. Mm. And I think actually I wear a dog collar in my everyday work, and I think that can be quite powerful for people to hear someone in the uniform of a priest say, I'm sorry about mm. that. Uh, but sorry is only as good so far, as far as it goes, really. And we, we need to follow it with action. And I would want to follow it up by saying, what can we do or what can I do to help you? 
and if there's just lots of anger there I'll offer anything I can you know if it's if it's space if it's quiet if it's if it's peace if it's you know something to hit proverbially mm, proverbially you know yeah, yeah I mean yeah maybe maybe that's what's needed um but I think we believe in the the dignity of every person made in the image of God and of their beauty and their glory and what as the church we would love to be able to do is give people a vision of what that looks like in the new Jerusalem yeah um and we're going to fail and it's going to be bad sometimes um saying sorry make taking steps of repentance towards a future where that's less likely where we safeguard people more clearly and where we're we're there to walk with people on their journey back however that looks for them and i think not assuming that we know what that looks like might be helpful um and to say you know in my place of work at the cathedral and i think more generally in the church of england safeguarding is on the agenda at every meeting mm. i rarely go to a meeting and we don't say what are the safeguarding implications of this? Because we recognise deep uh, failures and enduring wounds that have been caused through past failures and in more contemporary responses to them as well. So I think just having it on the table, the safeguarding of all people that we come into contact with uh, is crucial. The, the, I would encourage everyone to go to the clear. It's just a beautiful, beautiful oh, yeah. building. Um, it's been great to chat to you. A couple of things before we yeah, yeah, come yeah. to land. Uh, quirky things about the church, yeah. the cathedral, tell me whether they're true or not. Because we talked about the Peregrine Falcon. Yeah. That's quite funky. I quite yeah, like the idea yeah, that we've yeah. got Falcon. But I saw that for myself last week. Mm-hmm. Now, is it true there's a tunnel... There's the bells. <laughs> there's a tunnel between the fighting cocks and the cathedral that the old <laughs> priests used to get their drinks... I've heard this rumour true. Okay. Oh, wait, I just misheard it and said, is there a tunnel that yeah. they used to fight the, the chickens? <laughs> no. That's why I laughed. Well, I that like, may be what like... happened down one end. Maybe. No, the fighting cops pub at the bottom of the hill. They used to do that think, in the tunnel. Is there a tunnel? The well, priests. I've heard the rumour, but if there is, I haven't seen it yet. Okay. It'd be a very good thing, actually, because the path from where I live to the fighting cocks is not lit of an evening. So if there was a tunnel, oh, that, there would, go. that would be really good. Um, it, there is... Uh, <laughs> a little plug for the fighting cocks, though. A massive, a massive amount of sand in the clock tower to stop it being pulled over because of the bells on one side. Uh, yeah, so this, this is... Um, it's not quite as simple as that, but yeah, basically, in the 1870, something like that, the Victorians needed to do something about the state of the building because it was falling down the hill. Uh, and so they completely uh, redid the West End... Uh, funded uh, by a local benefactor, Lord Grimthorpe. Uh, now, historians may have ideas about whether they made a good job or a bad job of it, <laughs> but the reality was they needed to do something to stop it falling down the hill. So yeah, there is, well, it's not, not quite just a big pile of sand, but they had to shore up the foundations <laughs> yeah, by yeah. throwing loads of stuff in. So yeah. And recently, you've had yeah. a new path done. Mm-hmm. Someone told me they found an old priest from the cathedral buried in the path. Absolutely true. <gasps> yeah. Wow. Um, this is an astonishing thing. So, uh, now, I want to get the facts at least roughly right for you. Yeah. I know that your listeners will be really keen to write They'll in if there's, <laughs> if, there's any, if there's any error of what, of what I'm saying. Uh, but yeah, so it was a few weeks into the, the relaying of the path there, uh, and 
they found our body, well, bones. Um, and I think they've, they've now decided it's almost certainly a 15th century monk. Wow. They weren't expecting wow. to find it because we do know where the old monk's graveyard is and it's roughly where the houses are just over there. <laughs> so the, the houses are probably plopped on top of them. <laughs> um, so it's a little bit out of that. So there are questions to be asked. Why was this... Yeah. Monk not buried. So just wild else. And do they so they, they were able to identify like who it was? Or they just well, I think I think because of the way he was buried, it was clear to the people that know about these things that it was almost certainly a monk. Uh, but the astonishing thing was he was literally millimeters away from uh, some drainage that had been put in some point in the middle of the last century. So either they'd seen it and just decided to ignore <laughs> it when they put the drain in, wow. or they missed it by a. Like millimeters, literally. And has it been moved yeah. now? Uh, yes. Yeah. So when uh, it's not totally unheard uh, of for uh, bodies to be discovered, yeah. it works. Yeah. For example, um, one of the very, very, very important medieval abbots, John of Wheathampstead, was discovered uh, during the first stage. He's of one the of my favourite abbots. Was he? <laughs> yeah. John, I thought he might be. John yeah. of Wheathampstead. Yeah. Well, it's thanks to him that most of the cathedral exists. So. Well, uh, my name is good guy. Yeah. Him and um, Humphrey Duke of uh, Gl- Gloucester, I don't know. Um, who's buried underneath Alban, in fact, in Alban's shrine. So if you do go to the cathedral, look down, there's a grate, and you can see a coffin where this uh, 16th century uh, royal nobleman is buried. So we're going to reinter John with Humphrey uh, <laughs> in, the, in, in what is a royal vault. So we have wow. one, one royal vault in the cathedral. And, um, and he's going to be put there. He's going to be put there. It's like it's like yeah. Hogwarts. So, but there there is a room apparently somewhere, not in the cathedral, elsewhere, where um, all bones and things that are discovered in the area go to sit until they can be suitably dealt with. And I think we've got claim of quite a few of them. Wow. Mm. Callum, it's been a joy. I think we need Callum back <laughs> yeah. in again just because it's great. interesting. Yeah. We chuck another topic at you. Uh, we yeah. probably, I think, talking about the whole. I want to follow Jesus, but struggle with church. We may have opened a can of worms. So yeah. if you want to drop a message in to LEI, um, chuck a question at Callum, or yeah. even on the days he's walking around the cathedral, come to him. Mm. Uh, I think he said some really deep truths about uh, us following Jesus and yeah. what's important. And it's just been a joy to chat to you. Yeah. And I've so learned lots. Yeah. I'm going to go and buy you some aftershave now for <laughs> Pen Halligan. With Frank. Oh, you're very welcome. To that. <laughs> <laughs> but not the one that smells of tarmac. Not the one that smells of tarmac. Uh, <laughs> thank you guys for listening again. Look out for another podcast in a couple of weeks. Uh, be blessed. Bye. Bye.